You guys ready to hear from the Word of God tonight? Yeah, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I just thank you. I thank you for this joy. I get to be up here sharing with you. I had a a big uh, like a pediatric board certification test on Tuesday, and I was like, oh man, how am I going to prep pops and prep for this test? And God was so good. He's like, listen, you give me those first few hours of the day, I'll take care of the rest. And it was beautiful. I had some wonderful times with the Lord that I'm hoping to be able to share with you guys tonight because He revealed so many awesome things to me about this centurion we're going to be talking about. You know, every week, whether it's Aji or me or whatever, when we're up here, the Holy Spirit is using us so that all of us can be changed. As, as our brother Chris was sharing earlier today, he's telling us things specifically about our lives. right? He's telling us about our relationship with Him. He's telling about how we should be treating our wives or if we're not married, our girlfriends or our daughters or our sons. You know, He's telling us, the Holy Spirit, about how we're to treat each other. And I encourage you today, you write down the things that He says to you, even if it doesn't seem like it could possibly be related to what we're talking about because that's what He's sharing with you. And then I challenge you then to share it with us afterwards at the end as we start to share the things that God has spoken to us. You know, I think about it this way, and it was so profound to hear Chris talking about this earlier during our prayer time as it was sitting in my notes, is you know, the Holy Spirit can speak to me and that, that, that message can go out as far as my voice, which... You know, Bob will tell you it can go out pretty far. But it can't reach the places where you are. Right? What the Holy Spirit says to 40 or 50 guys, guys who each of us have different families, different workplaces, when we're guys that we're ready to share the things that God is teaching us, when we're ready to, for the Holy Spirit to come in and change our lives from the inside out, that's what changes a community. That's what changes this region, this world. That's... Truly, the most beautiful thing about being a follower of Christ is when He tells me it's time to change something inside of me because something inside me doesn't look like Him. He always sends His Holy Spirit to do the miracle work inside of all of us. And then people start to glorify God for the change they see in our lives because they know that there's no way that if we tried really, really hard that we would ever have gotten to that change in our lives because then they start to see the power of God within us. So brothers, I encourage you as a, as a pre-word that God gave me tonight, just be changed tonight. And then when He changes you, don't be afraid to put that change on display. That's what it is. An everyday opportunity to say, look what God has done in me. And I shared with you guys last week kind of personally things that are going on in my own life and how God is compelling me to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, particularly in my own home. I've, you see, I've tried since I was a young boy to be a better listener. I don't know if we have talkers, other talkers in the room too, but I had teachers all throughout my life telling me, count to five before you talk. <laughs> because nobody else gets to talk if you're talking all the time. And so it's been a real challenge for me to hear those words when Audrey shared those many months ago now, but really trying to put that into my life because God was speaking to me that night to tell me, hey, it's time for you to put this on display. And I told you, I think last week too, that it was just a few weeks ago, my wife was telling me this story and, he sh and she says to me, well, aren't you going to say anything? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just listening. 
And that was just the most overwhelming thing for her to see. Like, well, where did that come from? And I said, well, you know him too. His name is Jesus. And that's the most beautiful thing. That's just the thing that I want to really encourage us with tonight. So what's this new thing he's doing with you? That's my question for you. What's he doing new in you? And if you don't have at least one answer to that question, what's the new thing he's doing in you tonight? Then I encourage you to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and listen to what the Lord is saying. And I promise you that he will reveal it to you, what he, is, what he has for you that's so much greater than you could do on your own. So before we get into this word, let's just pray. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you, God, that you are a working God, that you never stop working, even when I don't feel it, the song says, you're working. And that's the beauty of who you are, Lord, and we thank you that you're working in our lives. Lord, I praise you, and I thank you for the words that you've revealed to me for tonight, for the guys in here. Lord, I pray that these words would uh, come forth clearly and change hearts as you would have them changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we started in Matthew 8. We saw how the Lord responds to when he has a long day at work. <laughs> right? He just finishes this Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He just finishes this long sermon, the longest recorded sermon that we have, continuous words of Jesus that we have in the Bible. He comes down from that mountain, and he doesn't act like I do, or you probably, some of you do, after the end of a long day. He doesn't seek out the lazy boy and say, leave me alone, I'm busy, I had a long day today. No. Right? He doesn't get grumpy. Instead, he performs this greatest miracle in this, by creating new life in this forgotten leper, this untouchable, unclean leper we talked about the last time. And our Savior reached out His hand and He fastened Himself to His child. And that leper was instantly healed. And I've been thinking about that. I think some of you guys have been too because that word was so powerful, hapto, this fastening of himself to the sinner. And I, as I was brewing on this and stewing on this a little bit more, I'm thinking to myself, what does this really mean? It means that when the pure holiness of God reaches out and touches the filthiest on the outside of man, the power only goes one way. That's what God was saying with me these last few weeks. It only goes from holiness into the unholiness, and He makes that unholy thing now holy in God's eyes. And that's what He's doing in all of our lives, including in this leper, is that he, this is his desire. Not to, to, he wants to heal us, not by our own power, but by his power. By through him living in us and through us. And Jesus is actually on his way to Capernaum when this leper had stopped him. This leper, this dirty, unclean, forgotten person to the Jews. But, and the Jews might, would not have wanted this leper around because they knew he was unclean because of their Levitical laws. But this next person that Jesus goes to, this centurion, you see, he would have been so despised, right? He's this Roman military official, right? Because about a hundred years before Jesus, in, before Jesus lived on earth, uh, the, the, in, in the mid-hundreds B.C., these Romans came in, and they became ruling powers over Judea. And this wasn't like a nice, hey, let's help you guys out here. The Romans are going to come in. We're going to help you guys figure things out, and then we'll be on our way. No. These Romans came in there. They weren't there to give them good pasta and, and pizza and be nice folks. No, they were there to be worldly conquerors. And as worldly conquerors always do, they ruled with a heavy hand. And the cruel and vicious methods that they used, the world had never seen before then. 
Because you see, Rome, they, they did. They enforced this really heavy financial tax on the Jewish people. And this tax didn't help the Jews at all. It only benefited the Romans. And yes, the Romans, they brought in their physical might and their advanced weaponry. But what Rome really perfected, beyond all of those things, they perfected terror. And they perfected controlling people through fear. Because you see, if you went against Rome, you wouldn't be killed immediately. First, they would humiliate you. And then they would make you a spectacle for everyone to see. They would literally line the streets with corpses, with crosses, that would hang these criminals on there for days until they died. And even after they died, they would leave them hanging so that people could see the vultures come and the other animals come and destroy this hanging body. And it's easy sometimes for us to be like, oh yeah, that would have been really bad for the Jews. But think about this, and God forbid this ever to happen, but imagine if we were here in America and ISIS comes over and they conquer America somehow. And not only that, they set up shop and then they begin to tax us. And they say, Americans, you're going to pay this tax and it's not going to help you guys at all. It's going to be a 50-75% tax that you're going to have to pay and it's going to go to ISIS so that we can conquer other regions. And if you didn't pay, if you're like, oh, I'm American, I'm not going to pay, you know what they would, they would, they would take their military presence and they would intimidate you and humiliate you in front of everyone. They would strip you and beat your naked body and hang you naked on the cross to die up and down Route 19 for all to see. And you might think, what? But that's exactly what it was like for the Jews in that time. This is, a, this is their land. The land that God has given them. And these Romans come in and they take over in the most brutal way possible. So you can imagine with that background what it would have been like for Jesus to one, go to a leper and be like, hey, I'm going to heal you, and then go to a centurion from Rome next. And so with this background now, let's read Matthew 8, 5 and 6. It says, When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. See, this city of Capernaum, it was in Galilee, and it was right by the Sea of Galilee, and even like we see today, all of the major cities of that time, because similar to our time, were, were around bodies of water, right? Like New York, L.A., Chicago, Pittsburgh, right? All on bodies of water. Because this is where trade would happen. And so the Romans would have had this large occupation of troops in that area because they want to protect that trade route in Capernaum. And when they would come and they would inhabit this town, they would bring all their sin. It would be like, you know, Las Vegas or something today where, you know, people will associate all the gambling or whatever else with, you know, Sin City or whatever they call Las Vegas. And what a decision then it is for Jesus to march into this hotbed of sin because I bet you that all of those disciples that were following the crowd that's coming down the mountain behind him, they're like, oh yeah, here it is. Jesus is going to let him have it. He's going into Sin City. He's going to let him have it. And he used all this power and this might to inflict harm on these people who are harming his children. But Jesus doesn't do anything like that, does he? So let's think about this, a centurion. First of all, we've got to figure out what is a centurion. So a centurion, I think I put the word in there uh, in, in the uh, Greek, is akatont arkos. Akatont means a hundred. 
Ekaton, 100. And Arcos means ruler. So this is a pretty important guy, the centurion. He has at least 100 soldiers under his command. You know, I imagine him kind of like Jack Nicholson's character in A Few Good Men. Who, who's seen that A Few Good Men movie? Yeah, the younger guys are like, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, rent it. You'll see some really great acting uh, from, from, from Jack Nicholson in this movie. And in that movie, Nicholson's character is this powerful commander in the army, and he stands tall, and he wears all the uh, outfit, and he's got all the ribbons and everything that, that shows him as a powerful commander. But when he, and even when he's ultimately convicted of the crime, sorry for the uh, spoiler there, he's defiant. You know, Nicholson's character is defiant. He won't even let his guard down even for a second. You know, he says, you want the truth? What is he you can't handle the truth, right? He's a tough dude. This is what we typically equate power with in the worldly sense. So here comes this powerful centurion, kind of set up like a Jack Nicholson character. But he's anxiously waiting at the gates of the city for this poor, financially poor, Jewish rabbi to walk in, right? Already we're seeing something's different about this guy. Something's different about this centurion. Because they would have expected him to just take Jesus and, and kind of throw him out of town. Maybe rough him up a little bit, or humiliate him first. But this is what really rocked me this, this week in my understanding of this passage. Because you see here, remember when the leper comes to Jesus in, Roman, I'm sorry, in Matthew 8.2. In Matthew 8.2 it says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean, and it's so beautiful, right? This broken, forgotten leper. So some, it was kind of ex, uh, somewhat unexpected, or I should say somewhat expected, actually, for him to come and, and kind of grovel at the feet of Jesus. But when the centurion comes, if you notice, the words for came forward is, is the same root. It's proselthin, proselthin. Okay, proselthin means like... Uh, uh, in the same way that this leper approached Jesus, so does this foreign centurion. And this word, proselthin, means you draw close. You draw really close to somebody. It also is translated at other times in the Bible as worship. So last, week, or last time we had talked about how the leper came forward to Jesus in worship, and then he kneels down before Jesus and kisses the ground before his feet. Well, this centurion comes forward in that same manner of worship towards Jesus. The same desperation that was in that leper was in that centurion. They both come in surrender and humility, openly worshiping God because they knew He was the only one who could help them. See, there's this natural tendency for people, even Christians, to think that God loves some people more than others. Especially if we go to church or, or live in an area like this where, you know, I was looking up, so there was some article that popped up on the news feed and it was like wealthiest um, zip codes in Pennsylvania or whatever. And Wexford, in all of Pennsylvania, Wexford was number five. And uh, I was like, wow, we really do live amongst the, the, the richest of people. And so we might easily think that God sees one group as being higher or better in His eyes because of what they have. But it's total nonsense, brothers, to think that way. Because God loves each and every one of His children equally. We can't apply the world standards to how God loves compared to how we think God should love. Our financial status, our worldly status, none of that has any effect on God's love 
And this is what's so amazing to me is that God always hears our cries of desperation. And he loves to bless us when we come to him in recognition that all we need is him. No matter who you are and what you've done or what you have, your prayers are as powerful in God's ears as the person who lives in a multi-million dollar mansion and drives a Ferrari or a pastor of a mega church or the Pope or the bishops or whatever background you come from. God knows you and hears you when you call just as much as He hears them. And it says here, moving on, it says in the ESV, it says here that the centurion appealed to Jesus. And I've always read this word appealed, you know, so he comes forward, he's worshiping, he's singing some first century praise song or whatever, and I'm thinking, and he just comes up and he just says, hey, bro, I could use a little help. That's kind of how I took the word appeal. I didn't really know what that, what that word meant. But what we see is that when Jesus, when he approaches Jesus singing that worship song, you know, maybe even having some involuntary tears falling as often happens to manly men like me when we're worshiping God, we start to see that this isn't just a simple favor that the centurion is about to ask. He's not going to throw a hey bro out there. This is something deep that he really wants. This word for appeal is this word parakalone. And parakalone actually means just begging. Like begging. Not like begging like a panhandler, like, hey, help me out if you can but like begging, like, help me, I need something deeply within me. I'm going to beg from the one who can give is what he's doing here. And similarly, last time we had talked about how we can imagine the situation with the leper, just try to picture this situation, this Jack Nicholson soldier, medals and tags, and in complete humility, he's waiting for Jesus to arrive, greeting him with the praise and worship and pegging and pleading with Jesus to help with the faith that only Jesus could do what he's about to ask. You see, what we're finding out last time, this time, and maybe the next couple of times, when we look at Matthew 8, Jesus comes down from the Sermon on the Mount, He just taught them all this stuff, and then we get, Matthew does this very often in his Gospel, where we get compare-contrast stories. You're supposed to look at this and be like, huh, that's kind of similar to that one, but a little bit different. Same thing here, we're seeing with the leper, we're seeing with the centurion. We're going to see with Peter's mother-in-law in a few weeks. Uh, well, in, 20, in another year. Next year. Uh, in 2020. And we're going to see with the disciples in the boat. We're going to see parallels and differences. The leper comes to Jesus weakened, beaten down in a lonely place. And he says, the word is legon, says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. This centurion comes to Jesus from a place of power, yet he humbles himself from that place of worldly power, and then he worships, and he pleads, and he begs with the one who makes the impossible possible. You see, the lowly comes, and he, and they, and he says. The up on high comes, brings himself down, and begs Jesus. And one more thing about this centurion and Bible reading in general before we move forward. You know, I... Have you ever wondered how this centurion ever even knew about Jesus? Or how he knew that he could trust Jesus, could heal? And there's a parallel passage describing the same event that Luke writes in Luke's uh, Gospel in chapter 7. 
verses 3 uh, through 5. It says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. You see, first of all, you'll notice, if you're, if you're reading uh, this closely, you'll see in Luke's description that the centurion sends elders to come and ask Jesus for this miracle. Because Luke apparently recollects the account differently than Matthew. And here's the thing, guys, and this is, what, this is what's so important for you to share within your own heart, but also to share with young people, because this is the stuff that makes young people turn from the faith, because we ignore it. But what do we do with this? This is an apparent contradiction of the Bible. Luke is saying, hey, elders came. Matthew is saying, hey, the centurion came. And the more we read and the more we study the Bible, the more these types of issues will arise. Right? There's one that you'll find online. People talk about all that. Did Jesus tell his disciples when they went out uh, two by two, did he tell them to bring a staff? Or did he tell them not to bring a staff? You see both versions, depending on which author. Well, who found the empty tomb? Which woman was it? Well, who did Jesus first appear to after the resurrection? And here, and there's several more examples, but here we see, did the centurion come or did he send others? See, brothers, at a later time, I'm going to spend more time talking about these types of examples because they are going to come up from time to time as we go through Matthew. But for now, let me just say this. These types of discrepancies in the Gospels are what make it, makes them so beautiful. Because you have four different authors, each describing the same Jesus. Many times the same events, as we see here, Matthew 8, Luke 7. But they recall the details differently. And I have to ask you, is there anything more human than that? Believe me, have you opened the newspaper recently? Right? Or listened to the news? Same events are happening. <laughs> On the one hand, it's, oh, it's a sham. On the other hand, it's, oh, he's going down. Right? It's like, what's the truth? And this is how I look at it. I look at Jesus, and I'm like, okay, this author, Matthew, sees it this way. The, the author, Luke, sees it this way. Because if they all said the same thing, then there would really be questions about, well, is this authentic? Or is this just one author who put different names at the top of each of the Gospels? You see, the Bible is inspired by God, but He did not grab those hands and make them write the Bible. He inspired what they wrote, and the people who wrote it were human. And these types of discrepancies show us one thing. And I'm probably going to piss some people off. But hear me out. God never, ever intended the Bible to save us. Okay? He intended for the Bible to reveal to us the beauty of this plan. To create. And then, when creation fell, to redeem all of creation through His Son and the sacrifice of His Son. And the Bible is infallible at showing us that plan. But God never ever expects us to base our faith on a book. If you're a Christ follower today, your faith should be based on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. And the Bible guides us to Jesus, and it's beautiful in how it does it. But in the end, believe me, my faith isn't going down if somebody says, hey, the Bible says this, and it's a contradiction, or the Bible said this, and that's not true. There's not pillars holding up the sky, and all this. All... I've heard people say this kind of stuff to me my whole life, and you know what I say? I love Jesus. 
I follow Jesus. He's been, he's been revealed to me in my life through the Bible, and I love him. And you can have all the opinions you want of all the different details in the Bible, but the simple thing is that Jesus is who saves me. And I love the Bible. Believe me, I'm up here going verse by verse through this book that I love. But the Bible does not save me. Jesus does. So a simple solution for this particular issue, though, and I, like I said, we'll go through different ones as we go through Matthew. I think about it this way. So, so um, I'm, I'm a supervising physician at the hospital. So when a patient gets admitted, they see my trainees first. They see a medical student. They see a resident. They see a fellow. They see all these people in training. But whatever those people say or do is like, I've done it. Like, legally, too, it's the truth. If, if the resident goes in and orders the wrong medicine and something bad happens to that kid, they don't sue the resident, they sue me. And so, so it's, it's, how, it's, just, it's just the idea of authority, as we're going to talk about in 2020. And the idea of authority is, is this idea that, yeah, it doesn't matter if his elders are coming before and asking Jesus. It's the same concept. It's him asking because they represent him perfectly. And that was just for this one example. Um, and, 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 and I think it's one way to look at it, um, you know, there's, there was a famous Dave Wanstead line. Do you guys remember Dave Wanstead, coach of the Chicago Bears, uh, back right after? I know, he, I know but, but he did come to the Bears. And he was the guy who was lucky enough to follow Ditka, the Aliquippa native who brought us the glorious 1985 season. Anyway, so in 1996, Wanstead says this thing. He, uh, that, that made him very famous all throughout Chicago. He said, in the preseason, he said, all the pieces are in place for the Bears to win the Super Bowl this year. It was the worst thing he possibly could have said because you don't have to bother checking, guys. I'm telling you, as a Bears fan, they did not win <laughs> the Super Bowl then or any other year after that. Anyway, so in God's perfect plan, though, it's better than Wani's, okay? In God's perfect plan, he puts all the pieces in place, and it results in the miraculous. Because think about this. Somewhere along the way, this centurion began to be influenced by the Jews around him. He didn't come in a believer. The Jews he was authority, had authority over started to influence him, to the point that Luke tells us that he even built their synagogue for them. So regardless of who actually came to request this of Jesus in this story, somebody recognized at some point in the past, that even this despised enemy centurion was loved by God. And then they showed him love that changed his heart. Somebody boldly introduced him to the one true God, and that started him on a course where God continued the changing of his heart. And then I'm thinking, another somebody, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, another somebody comes running down the mountain, gets to Capernaum before Jesus gets there, to tell this guy, this Roman centurion, hey, he's coming. Let me tell you about who's coming. You see, last, week I had told, last time I had told you guys about that, there was a Middle Eastern woman who came up to me after church a couple of weekends ago and said you know, she wanted me to share my story of, of how God reached and took a Hindu atheist, whatever I was before, and, and, and showed me His saving grace. And I shared with her that testimony, and I felt this deep within my heart that she was so close. Like God was just about ready to flip the switch. This is a woman who should never, in, in worldly sense, have ever heard of the saving love of Jesus. And I shared my story with her, and then I, and as I was walking out, I was like, no, we're not done yet. And I went back, and I said, I need to pray for you. And I prayed with the boldness that we've been talking about in Pops for, oh, I don't know how long. And I prayed with this boldness, hey, God has got this plan, and it's coming soon. You're going to know Him, and it's going to be beautiful. 
And I left it at that. And you remember at the, at the Rooted Leader training, Dan, they were sharing that, that uh, she was sharing about how um, there was this woman in her Rooted group that, that asked for prayer and, and said that she received the Lord that night. That was her. That was that who it was. So every step, every step along the way is a way that we can share our story and then God will do the rest. Every time we feel that within us, oh, I'm supposed to do it, but I don't want to. That's when we're supposed to do it as Pops men. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray with boldness. And some of you guys have asked if I would share my testimony again. I'm not going to do it tonight. But you can always go. I have a website that I, that I use. Prodigal Love. One word. Prodigal Love. .weebly.com, W-E-E-B-L-Y. So that way you can just see what God has done and um, feel free to share that with anyone who's looking for Can God really reach anybody? Yes, He can. So that's the first big picture. Nobody is beyond God's healing grace and we never know our part in bringing someone to Jesus. And the second big picture of this is that Jesus is about to heal this servant who probably wasn't a servant at all. I'll explain that in a second. Verse 6, it says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Already we see something different about the centurion. He calls Jesus Curie, which is Lord or Master. And he obviously cares. Jesus cares about this servant, uh, which, uh, I'm sorry, this centurion cares about this servant, which would not be expected at that time. Servants were like replaceable parts back then. Maybe it's because the centurion's heart has been changed and he loves the servant because he's a Christian now and he believes that all people are equal and he loves the servant. Maybe that's the answer, but get ready. It's also just as likely that this was not a servant but a son. Because the word that is translated, I believe, incorrectly is the word pious, P-A-I-S, pious. When instead of servant, it's pious. And pious means young boy. Sometimes translated as boy in the New Testament, sometimes translated as servant or slave. It just depends on the passage. But this word is the same word in the Greek. It's pais. It means young boy. And it's just as likely that this word meant, meant son. And it would explain something to me. It would explain the desperation. Why he comes with such a desperate heart to Jesus. Especially because if we look in verse 9, which we'll get to uh, again in 2020, um, but if you look in verse 9, I think I put that in there, where, he's, where, the, where the centurion is talking about if I tell my uh, servant this, he does this, and I tell my soldier that, he does that. The word that's for servant is the word we typically would use as only servant, which is duolo. But in this situation, when he says, when he's talking about this person who's lying paralyzed at home, he uses a different word. He uses pies or boys. So obviously there's a different meaning that we're supposed to get from there. And I'm suspecting that this son of the centurion has some sort of infectious disease, maybe polio or some other spinal cord infection or maybe a spinal tumor or something. You know, I just took my board test, I was telling you, so I got all kinds of ideas of what might have been causing this child's pain. But it was something incurable that would cause paralysis and pain. And the centurion... He's crying out to Jesus for his son to be healed because his son is suffering terribly. That word suffering terribly is basanizo. And it actually means tortured. That's how that word is translated in other places in the Bible, tortured. This is not like some kid fussing like my girls will sometimes fuss, oh, I got a cold, and they'll cry and cry about their cold. No, this is not that kind of fussing. 
This is the real deal suffering that this child is having. In fact, this same word is used when the great storms come upon the disciples in Matthew 14. It says, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves. That's the same word, basaniso. The way the waves were crashing against that boat. It's used in Revelations, basaniso, when talking about the punishment that the devil and the beast and the false prophet will face. It says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented, basaniso, day and night, forever and ever. This child is truly suffering. And his father just wants to see him healed, just as any loving father would want for his child. And I've known this in my own life, and I know some of you guys in the room have known this as well. This idea that when your children suffer, you know, it, it brings a different level of prayer, of begging, of pleading to God. It brings this paracolon, this, this appealing to God that the centurion brings. There have been so many moments in my life for my child where I've had no words to pray, but the Holy Spirit groans for me in those moments because He, Holy Spirit, is the word paraclete. You may have heard that before. Very similar base structure to that appealing paracolone word we've been talking about. Because the Holy Spirit, He's our counselor, He's our advocate, and He appeals for us. And within the Trinity, He makes our needs known through groans to the Father and the Son in the way that we never could. So this centurion is crying out and he's begging for healing, and maybe he's thinking that Jesus will give him a firm maybe. <laughs> or you're not good enough yet, I'll come back when you're good enough, centurion. But instead, Jesus says to him these words, I will come and heal him. You know, and many of us are waiting for that. We're waiting, we're, we're appealing to God, and we're saying, God, come and heal. And He says to us, if you listen, He says, I will come and heal. This is how Jesus is. And this is an important cultural aspect for us to see because just as last week we talked about how Jesus could not even touch the leper because it would make him unclean and similarly Jews could not go into the home of the Gentiles because it would make them unclean to even enter the home of a Roman centurion. Are you kidding me? No way. But Jesus doesn't care about those things. His focus is always on doing the will of God no matter what. He has this boldness that comes from knowing that He is always in the perfect will of God. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about what He's doing. He is going to go and offer Himself to go into the Gentiles' home. And He doesn't care that it's going to upset a lot of the judgmental rule followers around Him. He's so willing to put Himself, humble Himself for our sake. But the centurion replies in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have You come under My roof. But only say the word, and my son will be healed. You see, here the centurion is acknowledging he has enough knowledge of the Jewish customs. He knows that Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, can't come into his home. He has humility himself, that centurion, knowing that Jesus can't do that. But he also knows and understands the power of the words of God. When God speaks, the universe is created 
When God speaks, the lives are changed. When God speaks, the storms are ceased. When God speaks, demonic strongholds are destroyed and new life is created and healing comes. He knows that with the Word of God, Jesus can heal even from a distance. What faith! He knows that Jesus is not a magician doing tricks, but that He is God. And physical distance doesn't mean anything to the One who speaks all life into being. So tonight, brothers, I ask you, do you have that faith? Do you have the faith to know that God is not far from you? That even in your sinfulness, He is close like no other. He's pointing you in the path of righteousness for sure, but He's still showering you with good gifts even as you flounder. And you might say, hang on, Kishore, that can't be right. That's too good to be true. And when thinking about the love of God, I find oftentimes that if it doesn't sound too good to be true, I haven't captured the love of God enough yet. If it doesn't sound too good to be true, I probably haven't captured the love of God. Because the Bible tells us we cannot even conceive of how much He loves us. So what do you need healing from? Or what sin keeps you in bondage? Well, where is it that you have a friend or a family member that needs healing? And right here and now, I challenge you, take that moment to quiet your mind and think about that thing or that person that immediately came to your mind. Think about that person who you're waiting for the healing. Think about that thing that you've done and you keep doing. And then hear Jesus saying this to you. It's not impossible for me to do. Give it to me, and I will come and bring healing. That's what Jesus promises us. Brothers, this is an emotional one for me this, this night. You know, my, uh, my oldest, I've told you guys how she's had this struggle with this disease, and it's been a good year for us, but it appears that this disease is on its way back and she's starting to show some of these symptoms again. And, and brothers, I needed to hear these words. I needed to know that as I plead to my Jesus that He says the words back to me, I will come and heal her. Because without that, I would be lost in fear and anxiety always. But now I know that even from a distance, even without medication, even without anything, that I know that my God will come and heal her with just His Word. And I know that there's guys in this room that are dealing with these things. Like, come on, it should be done by now. And it just keeps coming back. The same sin keeps coming back. Or the same sickness keeps coming back. Or what you've been praying for doesn't go away. And I just, I just want you guys to be encouraged tonight that Jesus says, I will come and heal it. That's what He does. Praise God. Why don't we stand, guys, and let's, just, let's do our decree together. All right, so say uh, after me and then uh, we'll declare these things to the Lord tonight. Lord, we thank You for Your presence. We thank You that You are for us and not against us. And we offer our brokenness to You. And we accept Your healing touch and Your healing words. We thank You for all the ways that You have put everything in place 
for us to come to know You and follow after You. And tonight we decree that the enemy has no place in our lives. We decree that we send his lies directly to the cross where they become obliterated and destroyed forever. We decree that we have the righteousness of God because of what You have done for us. We decree that we will live lives of faith and that nothing is impossible for You in our lives and in the lives of those You have given us. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Praise God.